What is up, guys? We are live with Justin and our special guest, Elliot from Elliot Hello. Designs. Hello. Hi, Elliot. Nice to meet you. And if you guys haven't noticed, Elliot is obviously from Texas. <laughs> is that yeah. right? Yeah. Apparently, I am now. You are now. How y'all doing down there? <laughs> I'm, I'm from England. Oh, I knew it was close nearby. One of those. <laughs> so um, I'm going to introduce, like, hey, guys, real quick, if you get a chance, in the video description, I, I linked Elliot's channel. Now, Elliot is uh, a student right now at university at, for engineering, and he does a lot on acoustical engineering, although his actual degree is going to be electrical engineering. And mechanical. So, <laughs> sorry, mechanical engineering. It's all, right. it's all right. It's an engineering of some kind. And so Elliot's going to talk to us a lot. And we're going to be talking about compromises in speaker design. And that doesn't matter if you've designed your speakers or if a company has designed the speakers. What are those limitations that you can see? And what are some of the things that you should be looking for when you're buying a speaker? Because I think that's really important. Or when you're wanting to build one, what are some of those things that you should be looking at? Now, I'm going to uh, get off for just a minute, and I'm going to let Elliot talk, because he's got a really cool uh, topic on diffusers he'd like to talk to us about. So let's do it. Yes, awesome. Totally. So, so, Elliot, before we before we roll into that, uh, why don't you take a minute to tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, uh, uh, you are not a civil engineer, so you're an uncivil engineer, so you don't have to be civilized. Um, you are a mechanical engineer. You're studying to be a mechanical engineer, mm -hmm. and you are in where, – where are you? You're on the other side of the pond, yes? So tell yes, us a little bit about your background. So. How did you end up here? So um, I ended up here. I actually started loudspeaker design and looking at that sort of stuff when I was 15. I I mean, I, I didn't have much money, so I wanted good audio. And so the best way to go about that was to start designing and building my own speakers. So that's what I started to do. And it just went on from there. I kept studying to keep learning how to design better and better speakers, learning all of the acoustics behind it, everything behind that. And... And that's where I'm now. Now that I'm 20, I'm in my second year of mechanical engineering and it's just going well. I've started up a YouTube channel where I describe different principles and how I do certain things. And yeah. Well, awesome. So um, do you, so I kind of do a mix on my channel, car and home audio, just whatever I feel like doing really, because I like all aspects of audio. Do you lean more towards car or home audio? Definitely home audio, because we actually have a thing here in England where our insurance is quite strict on our cars. <laughs> I'd heard that, that, that there mm -hmm. were some very strict rules on modifying mm -hmm. cars, and that even went down to, you know, running some speakers and stuff. What's yeah. up with that? Why? Why the, why the government overreach? Um. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's not government. It's the insurance companies, essentially. They think that if you're going to put the cars speakers in your car you're going to be more more of a reckless driver or something and that increases premiums it's ridiculous it's just that's, yeah that's <laughs> peculiar so it's not it's a, it's a reckless driving thing it's not a hey yeah. you're gonna you're gonna run a wire through the door jam and burn your car down thing it is a no. uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, you can actually get specific ones where you can do it but yeah Insurance is interesting. Um, mm. There's a lot that goes on in insurance markets where they're trying to get people to kind of reveal if they're a reckless driver or not. And I guess, you mm. know, the kind of person who puts giant subwoofers in the back of a car must be crazy. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah so at the moment it's just home audio because of that but yeah I, so I feel, I, like that stifles, I feel like that stifles audio over there i feel like y'all could do so much more if it weren't for that but uh hopefully the yeah, insurance probably. companies don't, don't that would kill all my fun um yeah. so i've got a question for you um and i'm going to mm-hmm. open with this question right here i know you've got uh, you've got some things you want to talk about diffusers and stuff but I wanted to to ask about a thing I just recently learned about that I have was unaware of. It's called the BBC bump, or I guess BBC dip is what it really yes, ought to be BBC called. Mm-hmm. What the heck is that? Now, uh, wait so, before you before you okay. answer that. We just had the conversation before this started that it's called a BBC dip, and he mm-hmm. still calls it a bump. Still a bump. <laughs> that's that's that. Yeah, I corrected myself when I made the statement. I, I'm, I'm just we're kidding. Good. Just, I'm just messing. We're up. good. We're we got we have an actual expert who knows something about speakers and lives someplace where the BBC dip is named is, after. Uh, <laughs> and of course, the BBC is the British Broadcasting Company because um, it, it's a state, corporation. I thought it was yes. state-run media over there. Isn't it state-run? Um, not really. It's a bit of strange one, really. Essentially, they're they're privatized, and like we have to pay a tax per year for what we what's called a tv license and essentially it just means they have to be um unbiased and things like that all right well back on topic the bbc dip Mm -hmm. is basically a dip in your frequency response that some manufacturers employ Mm -hmm. why don't you explain what the bbc dip is so it started with uh the bbc with their own homemade monitors and their powered monitors essentially they had a horn based uh, horn loaded loudspeaker design and essentially in order to integrate the horn with the mid bass properly they found that it was beneficial to put a dip at where the two crossed over with each other so instead of being flat at the crossover range it took a slight dip and essentially, they just found that it sounded more natural from lots of subjective listening tests. So. See, that's interesting so that, because I know that you have phasing issues at the crossover point. And mm-hmm. so it's really common to get a dip at the crossover point. It sounds to me that the engineers at BBC didn't know what the hell they were doing and it just happened to sound good. And they rolled with it. That's what it sounds to me. It, it doesn't so, sound planned. So let me throw some other things out you that a lot of people don't realize. <laughs> so when I'm looking at a frequency response of a drop of a speaker loudspeaker whether i'm building it or whether i'm looking at one that i'm going to buy well we're talking about the bbc dip versus between one and four kilohertz typically so it's a it's yes a, it's a dip between one and four kilohertz and it it depends on how much of a dip it can be up to three decibels typically but can be anywhere in there i will tell you this if i'm looking at a speaker with a frequency response and it has a rise at one like one to three to one to four kilohertz mm-hmm. i'm not buying it because no. to me, almost always it's brighter because there have been studies that have shown that our ears are most sensitive between one kilohertz and 3,500 kilohertz. So the fact that, I, and I've employed BBC dips in some of my designs. So the fact that there's a dip between one to four kilohertz to me isn't a big deal because we're already really sensitive to that area mm-hmm. anyway. It's actually more about the directivity changes between the tweeter or horn in this case. And the midwoofer, and essentially because of that uh, difference in directivity, it causes some strange things to happen where in the area that they cross over. And essentially because of that, you have the power response, which is the response that you have 
it's sending out in 3D space, so it's going out everywhere, yes. And you've got your direct response, which is coming straight at you. Now, of course, what you hear is a combination of the two. You hear the direct response, but you also hear the room response. And the room response comes from the power response, essentially, the speaker sending it out everywhere. And because of that, what they actually designed into it with that button um, was actually necessary because, yes, the flat response, the direct response was flat, but the power response actually had a bump. So essentially, with that BBC deer, they're actually getting a more flat room response. Yeah, and so what we're talking about, um, power response, if you've ever seen a polar response, like a waterfall graph or something like that, where it shows like the red and the green zone, that's what we're talking about with your power response. It's taken at all different angles so that you can mm -hmm. see with all the combined angles, what is the power response. So one of the things that you'll notice with a power response, a power response is really good when you're looking at different types of speakers, right? So when we're just taking a look at MTM versus a TM versus that. And a lot of people don't really know what we're talking about. So whenever we say like T, that stands for tweeter. And whenever we say M, that stands for midwoofer. And the way that we put those in order determines of how the layout is on the speaker baffle. So a TMM would be a tweeter, midwoofer, midwoofer. An MTM would be a midwoofer, a tweeter, and a midwoofer. So I actually have a picture here to kind of show what that would look like. And guys, like I said, if you have not got a chance to uh, subscribe to Elliot's uh, blah, blah, channel, do that because yep. it's, it's good. I put it down here. So this is an MTM on the right, right here. Mm -hmm. So you have midwoofer, tweeter, midwoofer. And this is a TMM, tweeter, midwoofer, midwoofer. So the question that a lot of people ask is, well, won't these speakers sound identical no matter what the orientation is? Or in what cases would you prefer an MTM versus a TMM and vice versa? So what do you think, Elliot and Jason, Justin? I almost called you Jason. Oh, what? <laughs> oh honestly, I always prefer the midwoofer tweeter midwoofer because you get a closer response over the vertical above the speaker as well as below because what happens with the tweeter mid mid is you actually get a different response if you put your head above the tweeter than you do if you put your head below the tweeter and that's the same for the way uh, the directivity happens in the room because essentially you are now having one of the mids really far away from the tweeter and another of the mids close to the tweeter and because they're both below you've then got an angle where it's actually starting to beam the speaker upwards or downwards. Whereas with the mid tweet mid, it's perfectly flat because it's symmetrical. Well, let's let's clear that up real quick because it's perfectly it's designed so it will give you a perfectly flat horizontal response. But vertical response you you do not get perfectly flat. That's the reason why it's bad to use an MTM in the essence, as a center speaker. No, that's, that's, I mean, that's definitely the yeah. case. So the way sure. we typically use those MTMs is we lay mm -hmm. them on their side and use them as a center speaker. And that is basically the absolute worst thing to do with one of those speakers. <laughs> it is because you've got that horizontal uh, dispersion pattern, but you do still have the same thing just on the one side with that tweeter mid mid. It's just less pronounced, I suppose. Um, 
but it does mean it's now asymmetrical. So I would never use an MTM in a home theater where I have multiple seats. Um, it's just not, unless I have a wide dispersion, unless I'm using like some type of wave guide that gives me a very yes. wide yeah. dispersion, then, mm -hmm. then I, something like the audience 212 like that, that's a different story, but something like this where there's really no wave guide or anything, I wouldn't want to use that in a multi-seat home theater. Mm. Um, just because you get a lot of horizontal, I'm sorry, vertical issues in that way. I also would never want to use it as a center channel speaker. Now, sideways, center channel sideways, you know, flipped around. So a typical center channel would, let me, would look like this. Oops. Well, while I'm talking about this. Well, uh, while, while he's digging that up, Elliot, there's a question in the chat. Yes. Uh, Blake okay. Brockus uh, asked, um, is that dip, talking about the BBC dip, accomplished by moving the crossover slightly further apart? So is that done by changing the the frequency for the crossover? Uh, you know, it's cross tweeter a little higher, across the middle a little bit lower. How, mm -hmm. how do they actually design the crossover in order to get that dip to happen? I don't know how they originally did it, but essentially, as long as you have that dip, you, you're essentially achieving what you want. You can achieve it in a variety of ways, including uh, the one that you just explained there, and it worked just fine. Um, but that subtle shift does make quite a difference. So it needs to be very, very subtle if you are moving that crossover point of one of those, either tweeter or mid across. All right. So here's... Uh, what a basic MTM looks like. Sometimes they'll be yes. nested, but mm -hmm. the basic premise still is uh, this is not ideal for a center channel. Uh, ideally, you would do something more like this, where it's a tweeter and a midwoofer because they can do really good horizontally mm -hmm. and vertically. And then you're going to get the woofers, which are going to be crossed over significantly lower where directivity is not an issue. And uh, those would be crossed over you know, relatively low by 500 Hertz. Aaron's audio corner did a really cool video on the different types of center channels. I would mm. highly recommend checking that out. But if you're looking for a center channel, I would look for at least something like this, where it's got a tweeter, midwoofer and woofer, woofer. That's going to be like your best of both worlds. So basically what they did is they took a bookshelf speaker and just added woofers on the side. Mm. Uh, and those woofers usually are crossed over relatively low. So that mm. when you say relatively it. low, what are you talking about? You're talking like, like say, it's like a pair of eights crossed over it, what, 250 hertz, 500 hertz, what? Yeah, 500 hertz would be the latest typically, but I mean, it would be dependent on the speaker manufacturer, but yes, it'd be, yeah. It depends on how low that mid goes, the mid in the, in the just below the tweeter, really. Uh, that That's what will determine how low you can go. But could I have a go at trying to summarize some of the principles as to why this actually matters? No. Yes, of course. Yes. <laughs> okay. So essentially... <laughs> you should have seen your face. You were like, <laughs> I was like yeah, of course. Really? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Of course so <laughs> the reason why this is so important is because when you have two drivers next to each other and there's a certain distance away and they're a certain distance away from each other, when you're listening, they have interference. Essentially, as you move, the distance between the woofer and the woofer in yourself and the tweeter in yourself changes. And so the response also changes. So the closer they are together, the less difference in distance between you and the woofer 
and you have, and the tweeter changes. Let's imagine the tweeter is all the way on the left side of the room and the woofer is all the way on the right side of the room. If you're on the right side of the room, you're really close to the woofer. If you're on the left side of the room, you're really close to the tweeter. And that's going to change how the response is. And essentially, that's what you've got on a really small scale with these uh, tweeters and mids and so on. And when you have a tweeter in between two mids, you have this cancellation that happens a lot more frequently and a lot more exaggerated. And that's actually called um, it's actually called comb filtering. And it's where you've got really sharp dips in your response as you move across. And if you, in an exaggerated sense, if you were to move your head left to right, you quite literally hear a change in the frequency response. It changes in um, how you hear it. And that's why and you so want like, those drivers so close together. So with the horizontal, so the MTM was all designed under the conception of giving you a better horizontal response, but an exactly. MTM was designed to be flipped vertically. So MTM. And when we flip so, it horizontally, now when we go like directly in center, for example, like, most people use a measurement microphone on their home theater receiver, for example, to get the best response. And when you do that in the center, you're going to get a perfect response. But when you move to the right or left, you're going to have dips in your frequency response that are going to be pronounced. And some of those dips could be at really important frequencies that, especially for a center channel, that's important because you might not be able to hear the dialogue the way that it was designed to be. And that's why, you know, if you use an MTM, sometimes when you're sitting off to the side, you might have trouble hearing the, the dialogue. It's because you're you're actually getting a dip in that frequency response that you you shouldn't be, you know, and, and that makes okay. Sense. So that's interesting um, because the way my home theater room is set up, um, you know, I've got uh, it's a Tritrix kit from Parts Express. I've got the middle version MTM right there. Uh, so the top version is is terrible, is what I'm hearing because those drivers are so far apart. You're going to have some really bad comb filtering. Next level down, the problem is when you're not right in front of the speaker, it's not going to sound good. So I sit right in front of it, right? I know where the sweet spot is, where I've got everything tuned to. You're talking wife, about a, a horizontal MTM, right? Uh, yes, the horizontal one. My wife always sits further off to the left, and she's always mm. complaining that she's not getting all the uh, the vocals. Yep, that would be it. And That's so if it. I were to just take that speaker and, and find a way to turn it right side up without blocking the television, the problem would go away on her end. Well, Pretty if you can yes. also... If you can, yeah, but you also want it to be about ear level as well. Like an MTM mm -hmm. is typically designed to be closer to ear level. Like you said, we get really good off-axis response horizontally, but not as good vertically. So, Yes, and because of that, essentially, when you move it sideways, you're obviously going to have your tweeter lower down. So it's going to sound like the voices are coming from lower down. So, but the ultimate solution would be to redesign it and use that third one from the top, a second one from the bottom, the, the two woofers off to the side, large drivers off to the side, yes. and then a tweeter and a mid-range in the middle. So because that's what, what I'm going to do. Yeah, because what that does is it essentially changes so that the comb filtering that you previously had horizontally is now vertically. And because you don't move your head up and down as you're listening or, yes. as, or the people aren't sitting at higher and lower levels, you're not going to have a problem with that. I think regular guy audio mentioned this briefly. I mean, we, we, the way we locate sound, it's, it's, you know, right to left. We're not very good at, 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 you know, up and down sound location because the way our ears are, you know, stereophonic right and left. Um, can't tell if it's coming from above you or below you. And that's actually a trick we use in the car audio world 
the the best place to put your your mid base drivers, we call them, uh, or your 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 big woofers up front, is down in the kick panels of your car, because they're far away, so they're they're, they're the distance between the two is not as the differential is not as bad, and it's okay that they're down in the bottom of the car because we can't locate the up and down as well. Yes, and because you're in such a small enclosed space, that doesn't actually matter. Whereas if you're in a larger larger space, you can actually start to hear some of those height changes. And that's because of different psychoacoustic phenomenon other than just how we hear in terms of our two ears, our brain starts to process the timing delays and things like that to understand so what I, height the sound I, is coming from. I would go as far as to say that an MTM is one of the best designs that you can use for two channel listening audio like if you want to do an mtm for two channel listening audio that's all you really care about love the design i think it's great totally. you're, you're not going to be moving up and down you're not i mean but you have your entire area that you can sit in and get a really good sounding response you don't have yes. to be dedicated to that you ever see that like that one listening area where that guy's got one seat that he sits in it's like why? You know, just get the MTM and get some nice, you know, I, yeah. I don't know. A vertical MTM is better than a vertical uh, TM because you've got that uh, symmetrical vertical response as long as you're not changing in height. Yeah. Uh, and someone had mentioned, and this is a good thing. He said, hey, look, if you're looking at a TMM, you should look at a TMM that's a two and a half way. So let's explain what a two uh, and a half way is. Yes. So let's go back to the first. Ooh, I know this one. I know this yeah. one. Val right, we'll, explain it. We'll let, we'll let Justin explain it because he's right, super so the, excited. The basic it. idea okay. here is you've got a tweeter in a mid range and then you add a second mid range and you basically have half of a crossover on it. That's where the two and a half comes from. Right. I mean, well, I mean, that's I mean, the idea. Yes, you're, you're I mean, right. So, it covers yeah. part of the same response as mm. the mid range. So the mid range will be crossed. So, so this first mid range right here will be crossed over to the tweeter, and then this one's going to help with the bass response, typically in a non-directivity pattern. So let's say, let's say that we ported the speaker to 30 hertz. So from 30 hertz to say 200 hertz, and it will only be playing 30 to 200 hertz. To help out with the bass response so you're right it just sounded weird how you said it just <laughs> yeah because you wouldn't want both of them to be mids because you'd get that comb filtering i mentioned earlier and it would be worse because essentially when you've got two high frequency drivers like mids playing the same free high high ish frequency range you get some even worse comb filtering uh, phenomenon because they completely cancel each other out at that point and so a tmm which is a two and a half way is really good at um, reinforcing your bass response. So those that really like, you know, a deeper bass, sometimes they'll even use this halfway just to get you lower than you normally would in a room. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if you're looking for a speaker to help reinforce the bass response and still keep, you know, the TM style response, a two and a half way TMM is good. Also, I think uh, SVS does a TM. MM <laughs> that's three midwoofers and I believe that two of the three just are, are a half ways I don't quote me on that but I believe two of them are are half ways and that I think they're actually across at different frequencies too and then the third one they're actually tuned they actually have their own separate enclosures too they're all actually all three tuned to different frequencies which is interesting okay I think that would make it more of a um what would you call it Two and three quarter way. <laughs> <laughs> two and three quarter. 
yeah, yeah I, because I, you're I, essentially crossing the two extra woofers over at lower and even lower levels with that aren't you so i and i and i you know don't quote me on that but it's the svs i think okay. prime tower or one of those but i i believe that's how they're they're setting that up and that's another a two and a half way is another good one what mtm and tmm one of the benefits that they have and whether a tmm mmm or however many m's you want to put in there <laughs> one of the things that is is beneficial about it is we talked about sd in last week's show which has to do with the amount of air that can be moved in a room if you like bass right well when we're talking about a tmm and an mtm they have to have certain spacing between the tweeter and the midwoofer to be able to sound properly. If you're looking at something with like a really small tweeter and really large woofers, you're probably going to have a whole lot of issues unless they're using some type of horn loaded design. So, or waveguide design, something of that nature. Mm -hmm. So to go back to what I'm talking about with the TMM issue is you can get a lot more SD or a lot more air moving by using smaller woofers and using multiples of it. Very and, true. It's, sorry. No, you're good. Yeah, I was just going to say it's essentially replacing one large diameter driver with many small diameter drivers. It's you've still got that same surface area moving that air. It's just spread across in a different in a different pattern, I suppose. Instead of having it circular, you've just got it as lots of different circles spread across a line. I don't know. I honestly don't know. Oh, okay. Sorry. Cool. I I saw that Wharfdale has done that in the past, mid stacked mm. on top of each other. Uh, what and was you that? Have the dual mids. Wharfdale has done that in the past, dual mids stacked on top of each other. Air tweeter. It, see, there's all kinds of different designs. There's one other design that we wanted to talk about for sure, and that's the design with a subwoofer, a midwoofer, and a tweeter. So what are the benefits and drawbacks of something like that? So there was actually a question in the chat about that a little bit ago. Someone asked, hey, can you put a tweeter, a mid, and a subwoofer in the same cabinet? And um, and to answer that question, well, absolutely, yes, you can. If you go way back in the day, that's the way they were all made. The, the big monkey coffin-style speakers that we had back in the 80s were all like that. So go ahead. So, yeah, essentially with that kind of design, you're limited by the space constraints because, of course, when you're putting it all in one speaker, you're, you've got less volume for that subwoofer driver. And so you're going to have lower efficiency out of it and it won't reach as deep. Um, so that's Hoffman's Iron Law. And there's a guy yes. that we have on this show right now that knows a lot about Hoffman's Iron Law. He did an entire video about Hoffman's Iron Law. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Hoffman's Iron Law so that we can kind of understand that. So the, the short version of Hoffman's Iron Law is that you can have an enclosure that is efficient um, or an enclosure that is small or an enclosure that hits low, pick two. That's the, the kind of short version of it. Uh, so it another can either way be small, like a small cabinet, right? Right. Low, go low in frequency, and be efficient. Like if you had all three of those, you'd have the perfect trifecta is what you're saying. Right. But you can't do all three at the same time. No. So if you, you have, have to a, lose one. 
Right. I think about these small enclosures I have behind me. I think about the kicker one I reviewed a couple of weeks ago. Perfectly fine enclosure, well built, sounds great, but it's small. So it's not going to, it's going to, it's just a matter of physics, right? If you've got a small enclosure, uh, you can't be uh, efficient and low at the same time, right? If you want to have a efficient enclosure, you want to have an efficient subwoofer that gets really low, it's got to be huge. Yeah. If, if that's a, actually a sealed subwoofer and it's a small volume, that subwoofer is trying to compress that air volume behind it. And that's where your efficiency losses come from because you're right, having to right. put more power into it in order for it to push that air back. That air acts as, as, as a suspension and the yes. smaller the enclosure, the tighter the suspension, harder it mm -hmm. is to push. Totally. And, and so there are ways to get around it. Let me first show a picture of a three-way. So basically what, what typically happens is if you're going to add a subwoofer and you're going to want to get anywhere deep 30 hertz or below you either need to have a much larger woofer or uh and you're still gonna need a bigger box or or you're gonna need you're gonna need a big box but there are ways to get around that we're gonna talk about that so this is like a three-way right here this is what we're typically talking about a tweeter a mid and a woofer and so you've got to pick two of those three so if you're looking at a three-way that's highly efficient you have to know right away it's not going to get down very low so if they're going to be a three-way with a subwoofer built in, the one thing that you're going to want to know is you're going to want power quite a bit. And, and depending on the speaker, depends on the power. But if you're having a subwoofer built in, expect it to be a very inefficient uh, speaker system and expect your tweeter to be dissipating a lot of heat because they have to cut it down. Right, yes. right. They'll have to throw a couple of resistors on that tweeter to... <laughs> a couple hundred resistors. <laughs> yeah. So right. there, there is a way to get by this, right? Now, do you know how, how we get by this? Uh, well, actually, we all know because I, sh I shared it ahead of time. But let's do this. This is the way you get around this. Does any uh, if it, Is anyone familiar with Definitive Technologies? Um, a little bit. I've seen some of their stuff, but I haven't looked into their technology specifically. What, what right, is so it we're trying to get around, Nick? We're getting around off Hoffman's Iron Law, or we're getting around the fact that, that getting you've around Hoffman's Iron Law? Both, both, both. So yeah. there's there's two things I want to talk about later, but one is the offset tweeter, why we would Ooh, offset yes. it and why we wouldn't. But the other thing that I want to talk about definitive technologies here is this subwoofer right here is mm -hmm. not a normal subwoofer. It's actually a powered subwoofer. Okay. And that's the way you get around this dilemma you use a powered subwoofer right and then which can be built in the cabinet and then everything else so you can still have high efficiency but then you just power just a subwoofer portion yes yeah, so what they're doing there is they're instead just pumping more power into that subwoofer to compensate aren't they I on presume. the efficiency yeah so in, yeah, instead of saying on the efficiency yeah instead of saying hey i don't want to give you a very low efficiency speaker where you have to pump a thousand watts at the speaker instead let's give you well we'll build it i think most of these and i don't know this particular model most of them have like an 800 watt powered subwoofer already in it mm. and of course it has a dial on the back where you just pick the volume of the subwoofer based on where you're sitting in the room and then everything else you power with your receiver so these um, drivers here are powered by your receiver, which are just mids and tweeters. 
and then this subwoofer and, and wolf these look like regular woofers and then this looks like a subwoofer so it's essentially half active half passive it is absolutely the only active part is the subwoofer mm -hmm. now there's another way to get around this too which is dsp right yes very much so well dsp you can't really add anything to it but what you can do is cut stuff so dsp you're limited in the fact that okay no you can't add any more volume because what's limiting that is your sensitivity of your speaker and your um and the power that you're providing the speaker but what you can do is to compensate for the lack of bass is cut everything else so if you cut everything else from it uh yes you're lowering the overall sensitivity of the speaker but you're still getting the response that you want yeah, so another way that you can get around that would be to basically determine how each, how much power each speaker gets, but you're doing yes. that through a digital versus a passive crossover. And yes. the advantage of that, to some degree, is not having to worry about the heat dissipation that we were talking about earlier within the passive components. Mm. There is kind of a cheaty way you can do it as well, where it is actually still passive, but you can still apply that correction filter, but that's more like the room correction side of things, really. But you can actually apply room correction in a way that actually corrects your speaker if you do it in a linear phase fashion. And we're going to talk about that because you have a whole series on linear phase, which just fascinates yes. me. And I know it fascinates a lot of people. But before we do that, let's talk about this offset tweeter. Yes, of course. There's a lot of designs now that are coming out with this offset tweeter. Now, the tweeter, mm. when we say offset, we mean it's not directly in the center, right? So this tweeter is sitting to the right-hand side, and you'll always know when it's offset, it's always going to be offset the opposite way on the other speaker. If it's ever offset in the same direction, run away from the speakers immediately. <laughs> You've they, got two left speakers there. They don't know what they're doing. Yeah. No. So make sure they're offset on opposite direction. So tell me, why are they offset what are the advantages yes. and disadvantages of that okay so having them offset essentially when you've got a speaker on a baffle that baffle projects the sound forwards but when it's central on that baffle the the let me I'll, think I'll point that. at this particular okay. one yes um, assume that this was directly center at the top but then you would mm. have the fraction points off the baffle on all yes. sides and that would mean that the gain you get from the speaker being on the baffle because the sound projects off it, it all drops off at one frequency because the tweeter is that specific uh, distance away from each of those walls. And where those walls disappear, where that baffle disappears, is where you get that loss of your extra gain from your baffle. So, so let me it, stop you real quick. It makes it very... Oh, no, go ahead. Say that. Real quick. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say it makes the response uh, very irregular in the high frequency region because you no longer have flat gain. Whereas when you offset it a bit, you're now applying. Let me, let me oh, pause yes. you real yes. quick before before we get to the offsetting. Um, yes. The worst place for a tweeter to be to lie mm -hmm. because of this. Basically, what we're saying is every time the center of the tweeter has the same distance to the edge it will diffract at that frequency. And that frequency yes. is based on the distance from the center of the tweeter to the edge of the baffle, mm -hmm. right? So the worst place for it to be is if it was in directly center of a square, 
because then all the diffraction points, it's going to diffract no matter what, but all the diffraction points are going to diffract at all the exact same frequency, creating a much bigger spike mm -hmm. in the frequency. So that would be the worst. The second worst, which you're not going to get very many times because you don't see a tweeter typically in its own box. The second worst is if you see a tweeter directly in the center and it's the same distance from either side and the top of the speaker. Yes. That's, and that would that's, be with a that would be with a circular baffle with it centrally in the circular baffle because it's the exact same distance from each part of the wall. And so that's yeah. Wrong. yeah, I think the actual worst would point. be exactly yeah. that. If you had a if yeah. you had a round baffle and the and the tweeter mm -hmm. is right in the middle of a round baffle, because then you really wanted the exact same frequency. Yes. And so you're saying you offset this so that that frequency, uh, so all that diffraction doesn't happen at the exact same frequency. It happens yeah. at several it's different frequencies. So you kind of mm -hmm. spread the the ill effects of the diffraction out among, along the the bandwidth. Totally. So I would tell you, first of all, if you're looking at a speaker or designing a speaker, even though it looks nice to have the tweeter kind of like central on either side and central from the top, don't do it because that's adding to that's adding more diffraction at mm -hmm. the same frequency. Yep. So now it's all piling up at the same frequency. That's the problem. You don't want it piling at the same frequency. Mm -hmm. uh, so the offset then would be to yes. to different frequencies so that diffraction is not as you're not. You're not continuing to like increase that diffraction. That diffraction is happening here and then maybe here and here. And it's adding just a little bit of diffraction. Exactly. And I think I could add a bit of a scientific basis to that, where essentially, as you lower in frequency, you've got longer wavelengths. And those longer wavelengths re are represented by longer dimensions of a baffle. So let's say we had a tweeter on a really large baffle, you're going to have it projecting frequencies all the way down to really low frequencies. But as, as the baffle gets smaller and smaller and smaller, the cutoff for those frequencies gets higher and higher and higher. So you're boosting only the higher parts of those frequencies. And now as we offset that driver, we essentially cut at different points. So uh, tweeter is no longer boosting at just that specific high portion of the um, high portion of the response. If you look at another dimension, it's then representing a different portion of the high frequency response. And those different dimensions, essentially, from it being offset, mean that it is mean that it's no longer all bunched up together as Justin said it's now spread across the frequency range the boosts but happen there there is a there is a disadvantage to this as well yes and we're going to explain that real quick so we've already mentioned comb filter and when you mm -hmm. move off axis of that speaker you get more comb filter now these speakers are designed that they can literally be flipped either way depending on your room and what you are trying to go for however if you think about it, when you're on this tweeter and you move this way to the right on this this particular speaker right here, and you move to the right of this speaker, you're you're going to be in phase longer. You're you're going to have less issues when you go this way. But when you go this way, all of a sudden your tweeter is significantly further away, and so as you go this way, you're going to have more problems. Meaning that your sound going left and your sound going right is actually going to differ. 
Yes. And essentially, that's why you want those speakers so that the tweeters are on opposite sides. They're symmetrical compared to each other because it's actually pushing where the direct where the tweeter direction is going. It's pushing it off to the side. It's no longer shooting straight forward. It's now shooting off to the side slightly. And, and that's why you want it to be the opposite on the left and right speakers as those are. And this speaker is definitely designed to be towed in towards your listening space. This is not going to be one of those speakers that you typically have, you know, pointing directly to you because those tweeters, you should be pointing towards you. Totally. And if the woof, if the subwoofers were on the opposite side of the speaker, uh, you'd have them the other way around, then you'd be wanting to actually tow it out compared to where you'd usually have it because it's pushing in the opposite direction. Absolutely. And what Elliot was saying too is if just to make sure everyone got it, if you have a large enough baffle, right, you don't have to worry about that diffraction as much because that diffraction is going to be in an area that you're going to, the tweeter won't be playing. Much lower frequency. Yep. Yeah. So that's one of the advantages of having a larger, wider baffle. But then it starts to affect mid ranges. So you do still have it just. At lower and lower points in frequency. At what frequency, right? So in wall speakers, yeah. for example, it depending on the wall, you don't, you know, you don't have those diffraction in the same way that we're talking about now. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are there are advantages to in wall speakers. We're not going to talk about those today. Yeah. Uh, real, go ahead. I was just going to say a good way to imagine what's happening with diffraction is if you imagine all along the edges of that baffle are lots of different new sources of sound. So essentially imagine you've got really low sensitivity tweeters all around the edges of that baffle and they're slightly delayed from that mid tweeter, the tweeter in the center. That's essentially what's happening there. If you imagine all of the little point source sounds along the edges of that. I like that. Yeah, Yeah, I like that. All right. So guys, by the way, if you have a question that you really need answered, you're, you're probably going to super chat because we're, we're doing like really good at like, you know, just talking just, and I'm not being, I, I just, I'm not, I'm going to miss some of the questions. I, I thank Justin for keeping an eye out. I did see this one by Edens. So, Hey, what's the compromise of a concentric tweeter? And by the way, we need to talk about different types of concentric tweeters in a minute, but what's the compromise of a concentric? He must be from your part of the world because uh, here in the U S we call them coaxial. Uh, but concentric tweeter, like eminence height speakers you built a while back. Now, the eminence speakers, just for those who know, it, it looks like a midwoofer, and then you screw on the tweet, the compression driver in the back, which is a little different, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Okay, so there is actually a slight difference. So, um, yes, that's right with the, um, with the coaxial, but concentric can also mean in the way that KEF do their tweeters, where they've got their tweeter actually in the center of that. Uh, concentric just means a circle within or another circle, essentially. It's more of an engineering term, but I use I use coaxial myself. So, Yeah, and so what are some of the design... So, well, let, let's put it this way. Not every coaxial or concentric driver is designed the same. Let's start no. there. So, for example, the eminence, one of the things uh, that's interesting is... They're trying hard to make uh, the reason why concentric or coaxial was first designed, I should say, is to try to help the sound leave the same spot at the same time. Mm-hmm. However, but however, depending on how it's designed, that's not always the case. So like for the eminence, for example, that 
that's not the case. They tried to get it close. And mm-hmm. depending on which speaker you use, it is close. It's a lot closer than what you would typically have. And I'll talk about some other disadvantages with the eminence here in a minute. But let's talk in general, coaxial design. Mm-hmm. A lot of people use it, right? Um, ELAC uses a lot of coaxial. KEF, you mentioned, use it. Yep. Um, what What are your opinions on so essentially what they're trying to do isn't it they're, they're just trying to get so that the z offset which um which you've mentioned in your videos previously to be the same so you want essentially the source of your speaker to be playing at the same uh same point so typically um what you'd have in a normal speak in a normal tower or normal bookshelf is you'd have your tweeter quite far forward compared to where your woofer is and what that does is it means that the sound leaves the tweeter before it leaves the woofer essentially because they're no longer in balance in terms of time you've got the tweeter reaching your ears before the woofer does and that's what the z offset compensates for but when you've got a properly designed concentric or coaxial driver you've got the voice calls essentially aligned perfectly and they're playing in tandem they're they're going together at the same point at the same point in time and the same position as well so that's the idea you want to get as close to the perfect speaker as possible and the perfect speaker is one speaker so imagine this is is your tweeter which is a crazy and this is your your woofer as you can tell the magnet here is not the same as the magnet that would be back here they're, they're not lined up and so in speaker design we use the z offset like you said which is a three measurement method, which I've done a lot of times. That's with the passive. In active, you can actually time align that. You can yes. actually put a pause in basically of so many milliseconds to design mm-hmm. that. And one of the best ways to tell that with that I know of, at least, and maybe you can say, it, is to take an impulse response and line up the impulse responses so that they yeah, line totally. up. And in uh, REW, what you're actually able to do is you're actually able to take a measurement compared to another channel. So you have, for example, the left channel referencing the right channel. And that that will tell you in your own impulse response section how how far offset it is from zero. And what you can then do is set, like for example, your tweeter to your left channel and your woofer to the right channel with their crossovers applied. And you can actually then just straight away see that difference in your impulse response. And then you can tell, hey, this one is leaving sound earlier than this one. Let's let's compensate for that. So So that's what a coaxial was designed for. And there are Mm -hmm. good car coaxials are not really designed around that. Okay. They're designed about convenience more than anything else. So let's get that out of the way first. Car coaxials are not the same thing that we're talking about in this particular case typically there there are a couple of maybe exceptions to that uh there's a brand illusion audio they're, they're kind of a more of a pricier brand they actually have a, a concentric design where you can buy amp the tweeter and everything uh, at the same time uh there are some other brands that have these uh, i think gl audio does this where you can actually physically remove the tweeter from inside of the coaxial speaker and then mount it somewhere else but that really isn't it hasn't been designed that we were talking about here. Uh, I, I'm I, the only experience I have with these. If you remember the boombox build off, I did the executive boombox. It used one of those coincentric uh, tweeters. So there's a little, you know, four or five inch mid range with a tiny little tweeter sitting inside the dust cap of the of the mid range, and that was an interesting crossover to build because it needed a lot of parts to sound good. So, but I, 
you know, Andrew Jones loves coaxial driver. I, I don't know that there is a huge advantage if you designed the speaker properly in the first place, um, necessarily, because you're still accounting for that offset. But there is some some people would say that you might well go ahead you want to say something so what, yes so, sorry I, I just wanted to mention there are actually uh quite a few disadvantages to even when designed properly having your tweeter and mid separate of course no crosser is infinitely sleep infinitely steep, steep. and yeah. so yes and so because of that they're never going to match up perfectly and you're always going to have that um comb filtering or just simple off it's not a Z offset. It's um, it's a kind of beaming where it just changes the direction upwards or downwards. And when you have that with a tweeter and mid, you're going to, your vertical off axis is going to be non-ideal. Yes, your horizontal axis is perfect because they're in line. But no matter what you do with uh, vertically oriented drivers, you're always going to have an imperfect vertical yeah. response. And what we're talking about is the ideal loudspeaker, which doesn't exist. The ideal loudspeaker would be one driver that could do 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz from one mm -hmm. source perfectly. That would be ideal. Exactly. We, just, we just don't have that, which you're right. So what's the comp? I want to talk about the eminence one because that's a little bit different. The eminence one uses a compression coaxial uh, um, a compression driver basically so mm -hmm. you screw it in i oh i have it. yeah right so i saw your video on that one so this is this is actually the exact driver it uses mm -hmm. well one of them this is the jbl d220 ti you screw this in i don't i don't have a horn here that you screw in but you basically screw it into a horn so there's some disadvantages of that that particular driver was designed for a um, and, and this is the same thing if you're inter if you're looking at DIY sound group, the Volt 6, Volt 8, all those, they're the same driver. They, they use the same, you know, I can't say it's the exact same driver, but it's the same basic premise of the type of driver that it uses. Inside, if you looked inside, the cone is actually an acoustically transparent fabric. And just, just, the, just the cone part, okay? And then behind there, there's just a really, really small waveguide that kind of Kind of looks like this, like you're cupping your hands, but really, really thin and small. And because of that, your directivity is never going to be great because you have a very small waveguide. And mm -hmm. we're going to be talking about waveguides hopefully in a minute. Actually, we're gonna, we probably might skip waveguides because we want to talk about your DSP. We're kind of around, but so it's never going to be perfect. But it is kind of one of the best ways to still get high efficiency for atmosphere style sound. If we could figure out a little bit different way, which I'm going to be working on maybe once in the future, uh, there would probably be a better way. But that one's not going to be time aligned. We already mentioned because the tweeter is further back. I was hoping it would be closer to time aligned when I first saw it, just not. And then you also have the small waveguide, which is also an issue. So JTR also sells some for very expensive, also not ideal. Um, same same basic premise. Any 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 situation where you've got those concentric drivers, you're always going to have some kind of waveguide or interaction with the surrounding cone, the one that surrounds the tweeter. And it can be even worse if the tweeter isn't at the back of the cone, because then you've got reflections back off the cone and it bounces back, just like you've got um, cancellations when you've got the sound bouncing off the rear wall, exactly like that, but on a much smaller scale. 
All right, you know what? Let's talk two more things. Let's talk. I want to talk about your DSP. We're going to save that for last because I think that's like the best thing that we're going to talk about, uh, which I do. But I want to talk about the difference between a horn and a waveguide. I get this question a lot. People say mm -hmm. that, okay, we're t mm -hmm. I'm going to be talking. So Klipsch uses a horn, and then there's a lot of speakers that use a waveguide. Whether it uses a compression driver or not, it can use a waveguide. There are compression drivers now that use waveguides versus a horn. Let's talk about the differences between a horn and a waveguide real quick. If, if you're looking at a speaker, you know, horn and a waveguide. In general, general, general terms, yes. obviously. Oh, so you want me to go over it? Sorry. Oh, no, I thought uh, if you have anything oh. you want to talk about. Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah of course. So um, with essentially with a waveguide, all you're doing is you're changing the directivity response. You know, when we mentioned those polar plots with the different colors, you're changing the directivity response of the tweeter. Like Whereas the radiation when, pattern. Yes, exactly. The radiation pattern, how, how it transmits the sound into the room rather than just the direct response. So when, we, when we look at a a waveguide. I just want to mention this. When we look at a waveguide, it'll say something like 90H by 60V. Mm -hmm. That means it would go 90 degrees horizontal, so 45 degrees on either side, and 60 would be 30 and 30. Is that right? Um, yes, it's either measured like that or with three dimensions, it's depth, height, and width. Sure. Yep. And then you've also, and then you've got your actual horns, which actually amplify the sound and take load off the tweeter or off the driver in the case of a compression driver like that. And what's that doing is because the compression driver has such little excursion, it needs to take that load off just like a port does to a subwoofer. And it allows it to play without, with much lower distortion. It also acts as an amplifier as well, in a way, because of the throat. It's got a narrow pipe section. It's quite literally the same kind of thing that's happening with a port or especially a transmission line or a horn-loaded subwoofer. Those kind of same principles apply in a horn-loaded tweeter. So you can typically tell the difference between a horn and a waveguide based on that throat. So when you take a look at this, you see this big, long throat, and then it, then it spreads out. That allows it to load the driver, which is what you're talking about, gain that efficiency. Yes. And then mm -hmm. what you'll notice is like when you take a response with something like this, you'll get a big hump in the lower response. And it'll go further and then, then start to go down, which I guess we're going this way. And then start to go down, which really I should be going this way. So and then go down. But um, it, with a waveguide, so something like the Dayton H6512 is not considered a horn. It's considered a waveguide. It doesn't have any throat at all. So there's advantages and disadvantages to that. The disadvantage is it doesn't get as much sensitivity. Now, typically, compression drivers now are so sensitive, we don't even need it unless we're doing maybe a PA-style system where we're doing multiple woofers. Um, and so I like the waveguide better. Seos is the same one. DIY Sound Group uses a Seos, which is also a waveguide. Mm -hmm. When we talk about horns, some people say they don't like the nasally. So like clips or something, they're like, I don't like it when it sounds like this. That's a horn. A waveguide doesn't have those issues, but it also doesn't gain the sensitivity and the loading, but it does give you the dispersion characteristics. Yes. So if you're looking for a hi-fi, high sensitivity build and you don't want that, you know, the walkiness, then 
hockiness or whatever you all call it, then look for a waveguide. Look for something using the SEOS. Look for something that uses the Dayton H6512. With, yeah, with horns. It's actually all about the air mass within that small column. So if you have a really short throat, you're not going to you're going to take less loading off of the driver, so it's going to excursion uh, excursion more and possibly increase distortion more, but you're also going to have less of that nasally sound and less of the less of the efficiency as well. It turn, as you shorten the throat essentially, it becomes more and more like a waveguide. And that throat is essentially holding a mass of air that helps the impedance matching between the driver and the air itself. Yeah, and that's why I would tell people, like a lot of people say, like I built the uh, Cinema 10 and a couple other ones where I use that H6512 and they're like, oh, you used a horn. I'm like, no, I didn't. You know, and there really is a big, if you would be surprised if I've taken measurements in, in this particular driver here and in the Dayton H6512, and I could show you the exact same compression driver, and you would think you're looking at two completely different drivers. You'd be like, no, that's not the same thing. I'm like, I'm telling you, it's the exact one. It's just the way that this loads it and the way the other one doesn't. Is there Now, there are disadvantages to that, too. The disadvantage, like you said, the efficiency, and we usually yep. can't cross over as low. Yes, exactly. That's where the distortion things come comes into place. Because as, as I was saying, w- when you've got that, um, that narrow part, that, that um essential um sorry the words just come nasal. out of my head. uh yeah the nasal sound that comes from it what you have is it's decreasing the excursion and that excursion happens at low frequencies so of course when you've no longer got that horn action um stopping the excursion as much you you can no longer play it as low as with as low of a frequency and, and that's not necessarily a bad thing because we have the efficiency as long as you can get a driver. And with home theater, I like the waveguide better for home theater for a lot of reasons. But one, you, you typically, if you're using 95 decibel drivers, you don't need much power. So the power handling of this doesn't matter. You know what I mean? I mean, you might be given this five watts of power anyway. So, like, you know, your power handling is pretty low on that, that driver. All right. Yeah. Let's finish this off, Elliot. Tell us all about, so you've been doing this awesome, amazing series on DSP program and um, phase response and the differences between the different phases. Why don't you spend some time talking about that and how that interacts with speaker design and room design, you know, how your rooms interact differently. Yeah. Explain all that. Thank you, Nick. Um, Essentially, when you have normally Q or passive crossovers, things like that, when you change the gain of a response, it also changes the phase of a response. Now, the phase of the speaker describes essentially how hmm, phase is a complicated one, especially to explain um, without engineering terms. Essentially, imagine you've got that Z offset between the two drivers. You have the one speaker playing in front, the one speaker playing behind, as we explained earlier. You have that mismatch. Now, phase describes mismatch in terms of its frequency. So when we were describing previously 
in distances, we're now describing in terms of degrees. Now, mm. 180 degrees, you co can commonly understand by switching the polarity of a tweeter compared to a subwoofer. That's 180 degrees out of phase. So, like, for example, um, yeah. some speaker design, some people don't realize, like, when like they download plans and stuff, they'll say, why is your tweeter out of phase? Why are we wiring it out of phase? And that's because the crossover's designed for it yes. to be playing out of phase. Yep. Precisely. All it means is as one speaker is moving out, the other is moving in. It's the exact same. It's the exact opposite of what the other is doing. And it describes the motion of the drivers. Now, that translates into the distances we were on about with Z offset. And so say you've got a 30 degree phase shift with your high frequencies, that's going to be a very minimal change in, um, in depth but it means just as much as the larger depth change at low frequencies. So 30 degrees means just the same at high frequencies as it does at low frequencies, but they correspond to different movements. So the low frequencies, the subwoofer a lot further back in high frequencies, it's a much smaller change for the equivalent. The wavelengths are longer at the low frequencies, right? Exactly, yes. And that's what the phase change is. Now, with the minimum phase that I was describing, you've got that uh, degrees based on the gain that you've applied. So say you are going to very suddenly increase the gain. You're going to have a very, very sharp increase in the amount of, um, in the amount of phase that's happening between the drivers. Now, when we're talking about so, EQ, can I just say too? No, no, I was just going to yeah. say, and what we're talking about, like the way that you can see this is you can see this actually in the frequency response, right? Yes, very much so. And, and what um, would you be looking yeah. for in the frequency response to see that? So, when we're looking at it in terms of, in terms of the actual EQ side of things, the EQ that we're applying isn't actually going to represent itself in real life as you think it would because the phase changes mean that it doesn't behave as you think it would but in terms of how you actually hear that is it does something called time smearing so if you were to apply a minimum phase crossover as you were which is a normal passive type crossover or the normal type of crossover you'd have in a dsp system um as you as that frequency slopes off that phase changes. It's almost like if if you have your subwoofer playing as it goes lower and lower frequency into those um, into that crossover point, it's actually as if it was moving back in space, really far away. That'd be kind um, of cool. That's effectively that what too. it's doing. I, I now <laughs> want a subwoofer that moves when it plays bass. Like um, I also get hit with the bass and it comes up right close to me and goes bam. That'd be cool. <laughs> yeah, so, I know it's funny you it say that. Like, it would be like massive volume displacement. Oh, sorry, Justin. Something I've noticed years ago, even when I was in high school playing around with speakers in a car, as the frequencies change, it feels like it's coming from different spots in the car sometimes. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, subwoofers in the back of a car, it's the worst place to put a speaker behind you, of course. But, you know, at different frequencies, it feels like maybe it's just resonating in different parts of the car, but it always has seemed to me exactly that. It seems like, wow, mm -hmm. it feels like it's coming from a different spot. And the thing that I love about what you're doing too is you're you're using this linear phase and, and you're showing mm -hmm. you how to do it with simple things like a UMIC one, which is fairly inexpensive, and Rue, mm -hmm. 
and a couple other programs that are yes. all either cheap or free. Actually, They're I think all, all the programs free. are free. All of them are free. Totally yeah, free. Yeah. Yeah. So, so if you want to get like the best room response from whatever speaker you have, this is kind mm -hmm. of the way to do it. Totally. Because with linear phase, all you're doing is adding an instantaneous delay so that you have no phase change as you change the response. And, and is that, when we're doing that, that linear phase, I, I've seen you do it in the video. Mm -hmm. I don't know the mathematics that are involved in the program because the program kind of does okay. it for you. But yes, is it, is it quite intense? Yes. Does it also do it? So it does it at each frequency that it needs to. Does it also, <laughs> and I'm assuming it changes the Q as well. So how wide? The Q stays the same. The um, stays essentially, the... your filters stay exactly the same. It just hmm. takes all of the minimum phases. Um, the minimum phase is what that filter generates, essentially. And it takes that minimum phase and linearizes it. So it knows what the phase response will be from the filters you input. And then it compensates those filters by adding delays at those certain frequencies um, to make it linear. And gives you a nice linear so you yes. don't have as many peaks and dips in your response. Exactly. As you and that's why when I was explaining taps, which are essentially uh, the amount of information you can put in, the larger amount that you have, whilst being more computationally expensive, as in it takes more computing power, you can reach lower in frequency with your controls. So with typical processors, even with Odyssey, with mini DSPs, all of that, the correction you apply in those in those correction softwares doesn't actually affect the low frequencies as you would think. It isn't as effective as you are actually applying it to. Hmm. So yeah, and and I will say like this is the reason why you know I, I know you said it's not as, but this is the reason why on a lot of subwoofers or back subwoofers you actually have a phase switch from zero to 180 yes. degrees to be able to switch it hopefully somewhere at least in between there and the good ones have if it works properly has a potentiometer that you can actually switch between actual zero and 180 some of them just have a flip on a switch on the back so that's more with integration into the mains so sure that's all about how it's reacting with the room uh, rather than uh, making sure it's linear well does the linear phase about... does the linear so... phase not take into the room at all then account um or is it just the driver's response so the linear phase aspect means that it does nothing to the rate at which frequencies are outputted so mm. um with normal eq essentially you're adding you know how on your impulse response you want it to be as sharp and instantaneous as possible yeah of course. when you apply eq correction it drags this out at, and at different frequencies. You, it smears it. That's what it means by time smearing. You're, you're quite literally um, smearing the response out over a given amount of time. You're making it take longer to reach your ears. Gotcha. So, yeah, I would highly recommend checking out his channel. He does a great job explaining all of that. Uh, and he's done a lot on DSP. I don't know what all he's going to be doing, but... <laughs> He definitely has a lot of great videos already out there. Check it out. It's called Elliot Designs. I linked it in the description below. We did not talk about DSP like I thought we would. 
Oh, yeah, just, sorry. <laughs> no, I don't think that's bad because there is that question, like, should I buy, mm. like, studio monitors versus your regular? We're not going to touch on that today, but I'll tell you what. That might be one for the future. I don't know. You guys tell us. Should we talk about DSP in a future episode or not? So it's you. You guys tell us that. All right, Elliot. Let me... We're going to end the episode because we're seven minutes over. I hope you guys Oh, enjoyed. gosh. Sorry about that. <laughs> oh, it's nothing you. I've, I've enjoyed talking. Justin's enjoyed talking, right? I always Shake. enjoy talking. It's been great seeing you both. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. Before we go, we always ask what everyone has going on, if they're going to have anything coming up on their channel, if they have any news about the stock market, inside trading tips, anything like that. <laughs> we're ready to listen yeah it's 2 a.m man in england you, you gotta get the bed yes. that's why you're dozing off i'm not dozing off oh i'm sorry i forgot you're <laughs> still a student 2 a.m is early for you <laughs> no no i'm not actually like that as a student i'm quite strange in that respect really um <laughs> essentially things i've got planned they are going to take time because they're quite advanced for me to be getting on with, but I've got this really interesting project planned where essentially you take a Raspberry Pi, which is the, essentially this tiny computer. And, and they're cheap you, too. They're cheap. Yeah, very cheap. And you put DSP on it. There's a little bit of, well, there's quite a bit of prepping involved, but essentially it's a lot like massively cheaper than a mini DSP HD and a hell of a lot more processing power. So yes. I'm actually looking at getting one. Um, I have I, I built, bought into uh, a home automation. Mm -hmm. And to make a long story short, the program, the company that I use is called Insteon, and they went belly up. And they're like, oh. sorry. So now I can't like say, hey, my assistant, shut off and turn on my lights. It doesn't work. But there's a way to do it with the Raspberry Pi. Yes, home assistant. Home assistant. That's exactly yes. right. And so I can also use my computer, but I, I'm thinking about just buying a Raspberry Pi, setting up that way I don't have my computer doing my Plex and my home assistant and my editing and my, you know, all that stuff. So, um, but yeah, home assistant. And so I'll be doing yeah. it. Dude, I, I will tell you what, uh, I, a Raspberry Pi is really cool. If you can do some videos on Raspberry mm -hmm. Pi, that'd be neat because you yeah. can also do a, a hi-fi streaming device with a Raspberry Pi. Totally. Pie. I mean, there are a couple of things I've planned, actually. One of them is the DSP, which is the thing that I was uh, just talking about. And the other is actually multi-room audio. So oh. you know how you have with Aurelic yes. uh, devices. Um, you'd actually be able to do it with with the Raspberry Pi. It's a bit more convoluted. And so that's where the cost but comes from that you'd usually have with Aurelic. But it would actually mean you'd also be able to implement the DSP with the Raspberry Pi with the multi-room audio. So See, you that, could build fully active multi-room audio speakers. <laughs> See, that's actually that's actually really cool. I actually am looking forward to seeing that. Um, I think that's pretty neat. I, there's a lot. I used to I used to tell a guy that I knew to create a Raspberry Pi channel and call it Pi Man, but he wouldn't do it. <laughs> um, but yeah, everyone would be like, Wait a second. I came here for an apple pie recipe and I'm learning how to automate my whole house. What is going oh, on? Oh no. But uh, I think that would be I think that would be awesome. Uh I, I'm actually looking forward to this. What about you, Justin? 
Well, I uh, I have a lot going on. Let me uh, let me show you this right here on the screen share real quick. All right. And uh, let's see here. Share screen. Screen two. There we go. So um, as oh. my patrons know, I've been working on this top secret project here. And it is open for business. And so I've been moving my tools into this space and uh, and cleaning it up and getting it ready to go and working on some shop projects. So I'm not sure what video I'm going to crank out next. It might be a video about this thing. So uh, I haven't really done a good job of you know filming while I was moving stuff in. I've been busy working. So I've got a couple of shop, pro shop projects I've been working on, um, getting a, a router table set up. There's a cool car. Uh, not mine, but a cool one. But um, uh, and so I need to probably make a video introducing this project at some point, and uh, just a few other things laying around. I've got a couple of lamp dynos that I've already filmed that I might just throw together real quick this weekend if I can't get um, get this uh, um, next project up and running. But I've been working on shop projects, and uh, hopefully I can uh, I can I can do some better videos in this space. Dude, that is unbelievable lighting in there. That lighting is so good. Yeah, those there yeah. are eight five thousand lumen LED uh, light strips in there. Is what that is. I'm gonna get. Are those the ones from oh, Harbor Freight? I don't know. They came from Walmart or, or, or Amazon. Look how much space we have. This is my big my big you know extended cab pickup truck. Uh, plenty of plenty of room in there to to work. So. Uh, can get the vehicle in and still be able to get some work done. So that's going to be nice. Do me a favor. After wow. this episode, send me an affiliate link to those lights because I'm going to buy some for my shop. That's All right. right. That if I can really find them, uh, if I can find them. Yeah, check your orders. Check your yeah, orders. I didn't order them. The, the contractor did. Um, oh, stupid. So, contractor. No, that's good for him. That's just things for me. Yeah. Um. Okay. Wow. So I don't have... Well, that's not. Oh, I instead of stopping to share your screen, I, I shared. Stop. Actually, you. I uh, stopped my camera. All right. So I don't have a lot going on right now. Actually, it's not true. I have a lot going on. Um, I want to get a lot of videos out this week. I don't know if it's going to happen. I had a lot happen last week. My truck broke down. I got it fixed, so it's all good. Back together. Everything's good to go. Uh, one of the loves about DIY and one of the hates about DIY. You love that you can fix it. You hate when you take the time to do it. We also got a yep. garden. Um, I have a bunch of stuff for review. I am starting to work on an epic build. I'll leave it at that. Uh, it's going to be a hi-fi, and it might even end up being a bookshelf speaker that goes from 40 to 20 kilohertz. Uh, In-room response will probably be closer to 30. It's going to use passive radiators. And the reason why it's considered a hi-fi build more than anything else, is that all of the drivers are designed around clipple linearity. So that means that you can get the same response with a little bit of power and a whole lot of power. Your tuning doesn't change, which, believe it or not, most of your speakers don't do that. No, very much. So yeah. uh, I'm really excited about that. It's not going to be a cheap build, but I would say it's not going to be I, I haven't calculated all the costs. I'm, I'm going to guesstimate around $1,000 for a pair, which is not cheap. But when you're talking about in the realm of hi-fi speakers, I think it'll blow away pretty much most that you can buy in the $1,000 range. I mean, $1,000 range, you're looking at those KEF little bookshelf speakers, you know, and 
So there's not a lot. I do have these, which I'm excited about. I talked to you guys about this, I think, last week, too. SMSL sent me some of these. They're headphone amplifier and um, a DAC. But they're the HL100 and DL100. And I'm really excited about these because they're they're inexpensive compared mm -hmm. to the rest. And SMSL, I haven't listened to these, so I can't say anything about these yet. But typically, SMSL does such a great job with their products. So my hope is that this is actually be a budget fine DAC and headphone amplifier. I don't know if that's the case yet, but that's my hope. And here's me currently on Bluetooth. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a lot of things. But if you guys want some behind the scenes of either the Epic build or some of the stuff that I have coming up to, to review, just consider being my patron. I know Justin has some behind the scenes stuff, patron too. And Elliot just wants your subscribe button. So just hit the subscribe <laughs> button, please. He's trying to get to a thousand subscribers, right, Elliot? Yep. That's where I get the partnership. That's Thank you to uh, Bob, Baba for the super chat. We sure appreciate that uh, more than you could possibly imagine. Um, yes. And I'll tell you, Elliot, getting to that 1,000 subscribers point is uh, probably the hardest part because it's just so hard to get any traction at all. And what you can re remember is all the videos you make on your way to 1,000, you can remake those in a year because no, no one, you know, the growth no will have them. Them. <laughs> Oh, yeah, very right, true. After you hit 10,000, remake everything that you made from zero to 1,000 because no one's seen those, right? I mean, with the help of you guys, I'm already at about I'm out already at over a hundred now. Yeah. All right, and we we love supporting you. You've you've so Elliot is a huge, and I should have mentioned this at the beginning. Elliot is always a very active member on the forum at toysdiyaudio.com. Very active. You guys can catch him on there. Catch him on his channel too. I tell him all the time. Put your, you know, throw throw your videos up on the channel. We want you know we want people that go to the website to see it and to know it. Uh, I might might end up having to create a DSP section. We have a DSP section. I might yeah, have to create do. an we Elliot's do. DSP section sometime or something. I don't know. <laughs> but seriously, uh, he he just knows his stuff. And when you do the video on the Raspberry Pi, the DSP, or any, you know, make sure you put something on the website. Maybe we can also, if you want to create a, um, what do we call that? Like a blog post. We can let you create your own blog post to support that or whatever. That would no be amazing. Thanks, yeah. Man. Oh yeah, I, I always put my hand out for people that that are you know I try to help anyone out that I can. Uh, I can't always help everyone out, but I try to. But I, I, I would be happy to help you out in any way that I can. And David just subscribed to you, David. Woo! Our, oops, I hit. Thank you, David. There's at least Thanks, one David. subscriber. All right, guys. Um, we're gonna let you guys go. Thank you guys so much. We're out. Thank you, Baba, again. We really do appreciate that. We're out. Right. See ya. Keep doing this.